0: Hello, this is Ask an Atheist Anything. Welcome to another episode. This time we're going to be talking about the origins of language. It's a question that we've got in. Thank you to the questioner. I'm Matthew Taylor and we shall get on with it. Who am I with?
1: Uh, Yes, hi, this is your co-host Andrew Knight and again welcome to Ask an Atheist Anything.
0: Right, so Andrew you've done Quite a bit of research on the origins of languages, in fact we've both learned quite a bit uh, the past couple of weeks while i 've been looking into it, but you 've done quite a lot uh, on of the uh, legwork and the investigation and the research on the origins of language. How do you want to start?
1: Well, I think what i 'd like to say to begin with is this is often this is often one of those topics that Spiritual people use to, to suggest that our uh, language instinct, if you will, must be pre-programmed in some sense by a, by a supernatural being. And so we're going to set out to answer why from, a, from an atheist position that doesn't seem to be the case. And in the show notes, we will uh, link our research so, so that the listeners can follow along. And if, if at some point you're listening and, and you disagree with our conclusions based on the research that, that we have, we want to continue this conversation. Um, when we cover a topic here on Ask an Atheist Anything, uh, we can cover it more than once, and we want to hear from you. And in fact, if you want to be on the show, uh, we want to hear from you. We're interested in live conversation as well as writing questions, and we will uh, give those contact details uh, later on uh, in this episode.
0: So that's a good point. Actually, sorry if I can jump in in terms of because the what we've discovered in, t- in um, investigating origins of language is a big subject. It's a huge subject. And there's no way we could ever give it to justice in just one episode. So uh, if any specific question comes up on any of the details on this, we would welcome Uh, clarifying a specific point within the origins of language that we're going to cover.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, And so to get started, I I think Stephen Jay Gould had an interesting analogy about evolution that probably applies to the origin of human language, because in some sense, we are far enough away from whatever the origin of human language is that we're having a hard time reaching back in time to the exact moment uh, where what we think of as language diverged from what we think of as communication. So, so more on that moment. But Stephen Gould's uh, infinite hallway is probably useful here. So if, if we can imagine ourselves in an infinite hallway, and we look forward ahead of us and the, the, the hallway fades into the distance and we can't see an end to it. We look behind us and the same is true. We look into the, into the distance behind us. We can't see. We can't see the, the beginning of the hallway. That doesn't mean that we can't know anything uh, about the hallway. We can see that we are uh, in some sense in a, in a hallway that doesn't appear to have a beginning and an end. And if things approach us, in this hallway, if there were a bouncing ball, for instance, Uh, we could see the we could see the ball come up to us. Uh, We'd know it was approaching. We would know when it had passed us and was receding. We would know uh, something about its bouncing characteristics. Right. But we might not know anything about the origin of that ball any more than we knew uh, about why we were in the hallway. Uh, That's not to say that we can't know anything at all. But reaching back to the origin of human language. Is a non-trivial task, and in some sense, the research uh, by by linguists and uh, those that study language agree that we're not at a point where we can definitively say what the origin of language is and where it diverged from animal communication. Um, so maybe at this point, um, it's, it's time to talk about the difference between, uh, between language, what we as humans do, and what animals do uh, when, when they communicate. So, verdant monkeys, uh, for instance, have quite, uh, have quite sophisticated communication. Uh, verdant monkeys make sounds for danger. And in fact, their sounds for danger are—they uh, don't have the same sound for every kind of danger. Uh, verdant monkeys have three different sounds for danger, and those sounds are a sound for a snake that is dangerous to verdant monkeys, uh, a sound for leopards that are dangerous to verdant monkeys, and a sound for eagles. And so they've developed a sort of communication where one verdant monkey can spot a threat to to him or herself and the other monkeys around. And actually, express where to look for the danger, what kind of predator. Uh, might. So you're
0: saying the response of the monkeys is different according to what call or what phrase or however you want to use it is uttered.
1: Yeah, that's right. And and that's so that's, does
0: it come under the category of language then, or is that just a different call?
1: Well, so behaviorist, animal behaviorists still I think sort of think of this as communication, but not language. And one of the reasons is that language has a, a grammar and syntax, uh, a level of sophistication above simple sound. Right, we, we do things with language uh, that we can't do with simple animal communication. Even though the verdant monkey is quite extraordinary in the sense that it has progressed to be able to alert um, other verdant monkeys to a specific kind of danger, right? So it doesn't just make a call and then everybody scrambles and looks high and low and, and, and tries to discover the source of the danger. The communication is much more, uh, much more specific than that.
0: Uh, so you're saying if when you draw the the boundary is when you've got rules, logical or otherwise, which are syntactical, which which can construct complex messages, that's the boundary which you cross over from language to just verbal communication.
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh, and some animals are a little better about this than others. But, but there's no secret that we are quite far along, right? Um, even, uh, even very advanced sort of mammals, think about dolphins or whales or whatever, right? Um, we're probably not going to have another primate uh, joining us to ask questions on, on Ask an Atheist Anything uh, <laughs> okay. in, in the coming days. Right. So we're, we're probably not going to be interviewing the mother whale that just lost her uh, that just lost her offspring and spent days mourning. Right. We're, um, but but there's still a, there's still something to be known about uh, the evolution of language and why in some sense it's magical because Certain primates have the same gene that we do for language expression. Uh, mockingbirds, for instance, um, have a FOXP2 gene. And what we know about this FOXP2 gene is that it has a lot to do with our expression of language. So this this FOXP2 gene that's on the the seventh chromosome in the 31st position uh, in humans is uh, closely tied to the development of brain structures necessary to process language. Uh, And it's also, uh, it it also plays a role in forming, um, uh, in forming the facial characteristics to be able to express language. So Here's one, of the, here's one of our experiments. We took a, uh, a FOXP2 gene and we transplanted that gene into, uh, into the DNA of, of mice. And as it turns out, this FOXP2 gene changed the expression of mice. They actually chitter differently and form different facial uh, form different facial characteristics as a result of the transplantation of, of this fox p2 gene, and we can trace this gene uh, quite far back something something like uh, one hundred and fifty thousand years, and we can see where the expression of this fox p2 gene sort of diverges from our neanderthal uh, from our Neanderthal ancestors
0: so so are there any conclusions we can come to then from Uh, experiment with mice well
1: yeah well only only that this fox p2 gene uh, in lower order primates actually does change the nature of their communication and so in in some sense um, this fox p2 gene even though in in other animals it's expressed slightly differently there are some uh there are some differences in uh a couple of the proteins that uh that uh, that are important in this fox p2 gene. Uh when these proteins differ, the FOXP2 gene is less expressive. Right. Um but this FOXP2 gene does play a critical role in communication. Those animals that don't have it don't communicate quite the same way. And
0: so so this gene then is Essential as part of the human evolution then? Well, yes. In terms of us humans developing language.
1: That's right. And in fact, um, we have a a study that we'll link in the show notes uh, about a family in England uh, that has uh, a sort of broken Fox PTG. And this family has a, a harder time. Human language than than those around them. Uh, so one of the things that they have a, a difficulty with, for instance, uh, is uh, establishing plurality. Right. So they, uh, I might show you a picture um, of a watch, right, and you might be able to tell me that it's a watch. And then I show you a picture of of uh, three or four watches, and I and I'd ask you. What is this a picture of? In the first picture, you'd have told me a watch. In the second picture, you would tell me uh, four watches, if that happened to be the number. But this particular family uh, was given this test. And sort of the best they could do was watchness, right? So, so there was a clear problem with uh, plurality, as a, for instance. And, and this has been um, this has been traced back to a... Uh, a specific problem with the Fox P two gene, which is clearly
0: Show then if it's spreading throughout the family. Yeah,
1: that's right.
0: So, um, what about other human speech issues? And I'm talking, I'm thinking simpler ones. There's stuttering, is one example that that springs to mind. Is that genetic or is that something else? And then there's another slightly more complex one, which is springing to mind: dyspraxia, where you've got a disconnect between what you're thinking and trying to get it out of your mouth. Uh, you know, sometimes you know what it is you want to try and say you're thinking about it in your mind but you're struggling to actually form the right words to express verbally what it is that you're trying to say. Are these kinds of things related to genes as well or something else?
1: Uh, no that's the, so there are a couple of interesting um, there are a couple of interesting brain structures when we think about uh, when we think about how language is done, so the uh, Broca's area uh, is is an area uh, sort of uh, above and behind the left eye. Okay, um, we all have this area of the brain, and one of the things that you were talking about there was was language syntax, right? So, uh, subjects, verbs, and objects, and and in human language, we know that. Um, some languages are subject-verb-object, and uh, other languages are subject-object-verb, right? So, so the verb comes last. And to English speakers, uh, languages that don't put the verb in the middle sound uh, sound quite uh, quite funny, right? We've uh, probably all listened to uh, translations of Spanish or or translations of French, which I think are both uh, subject-object-verb. Languages, if I remember correctly. Um, But as it turns out, Broca's area is the area of the brain that, whether you're a subject verb object language or a subject object verb language, uh, whatever you are, Broca's area plays a part in syntax, right? How we put our sentences together. And so some of that is learned right? We, we teach children how to organize their sentences. But when there's some insult to the Brokaw area of the brain, those people simply can't organize words anymore. They lose the ability to uh, order their words. And in the same way, uh, an area that's uh, slightly behind Brokaw's area, Wernicke's area, uh, has some influence on language meaning. So in the, in the case of, of Wernicke's area, what happens to people that suffer an insult there is that they can form sentences perfectly well. They don't have the Brokaw problem where they, can't, uh, where they can't properly order words. What they have more trouble with is picking the right word. So they can, they can choose subjects and verbs and objects all day long and put them in the right order. But the words don't have any meaning. They don't relate to each other uh, in any sense that a listener can understand. And so once again, language appears to be uh, a thing that our brains do. Um, I don't know if that got to the heart of the question.
0: Okay, but that's very interesting. So what it does show, though, and what you've uh, explained very briefly, uh, is that language, ability to communicate language, of course, when we say language in the context of this podcast, we're talking verbal language. Right. Um, It's it's very much encapsulated within the structure of the brain and uh, certain genes and damage to one or the other, or heaven forbid, both, it, um, could quite significantly uh, affect the way that we can communicate using language.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, whatever, whatever language is, our processing of language, our instinct for language, our ability to develop language, all of those things are physical traits. And we can trace the human genome and find where those traits started. Now, in some sense, I think it's important to point out that pleading for language being that thing that uh, indicates some supernatural influence is to sort of discard the the very special nature of other types of evolution like the human eye. So I think it's reasonable to say That uh, depth perception and color perception, the ability to judge motion, the ability to judge height, um, the ability to relate things visually to discover patterns and uh, and avoid danger uh, to separate uh, snakes from sticks and that sort of thing is a is a very, very uh, is a very finely tuned uh, sort of evolution that we can trace. Uh, By looking at the eyes of of other animals and seeing what they can do and how they've developed, um, you know, over generations and generations of of animal evolution. And we think of language as being this sort of very special thing uh, that we do, that other animals don't do. And that's true. We have language beyond communication. But it is not in some sense... Uh, any more highly developed than, uh, than, say, an eye or the central nervous system and, and the spinal cord, right? What we are doing is special pleading on behalf of a skill that we have that other animals don't have. And then we say, well, because of this skill, there must have been some intervention. But the, the eyes of frogs, for instance, are much more highly tuned to see things than we are. So here's something a frog can do that humans can't. When we look at, uh, if you you were standing at night with a friend and and a friend was carrying a flashlight and they walked away from you, you'd see that light dim as the friend walks away, right? At some point, the friend could get far enough away that the light would uh, simply be so far away that you wouldn't see it. In some sense, it would sort of go out, right? That doesn't happen to frogs. Frogs have a highly developed enough eye that when a light source dims, it will dim to a certain point, And then it will start to flicker because uh, because light is, is essentially photon packets. Right. Now, we don't have to talk about waves and and particles and whether photons are a wave or a particle in the sense that light vanishes for a frog. It dims to a certain point. And then as it gets further, as it as it gets beyond the, uh, the minimum dimming point, the frog still sees the light and the light flickers. And it flickers pretty fast when the light has just gotten to that dim point. And as they get further and further away, the light doesn't go out. It flickers less often. But we don't see light that way. A frog's eye is actually more sophisticated than ours.
0: I want eyes like that.
1: Yeah, so do I. Because it is a much more highly evolved ability. But we don't argue that because frogs have better, uh, have better light-perceiving apparatus, that there must have been some special reason, if you see what I mean, that, that frogs yeah, have. We...
0: Yeah, yes, that makes sense.
1: Yeah. And so we sort of argue in a special pleading way that human language must be uh must be that thing that that indicates that there's a supernatural fingerprint uh on humanity
0: on the subject of that though and another point on side point on that is language is still evolving when we look at it today new words uh, enter a lexicon you be um listeners to this who, um, who have paid attention, You'll notice that our two accents uh, indicate that we 're from very different countries uh, on on earth, and uh, our accents will will indicate that, and that 's because our our language, the way we talk uh, is different in our two countries the uh, the people who who populated uh, America, their language is different they 've evolved a different uh, accent you spell words really, really strangely. Um, and this is the result of the ongoing changes uh, that we have in, uh, uh, in our language. And surely if we had been given language uh, uh, as, as a gift in, in a moment, we, is it fair to say that we would not see this? Because surely the changing language that we see now just reinforces the fact that language is a constantly changing, evolving naturalistic process.
1: Oh, that's right. Uh, And and there are a lot of ways that language has changed. I'll go through a couple of of very quick examples. Vowels soften. Um, So there's a a sort of triangle in the human mouth um, that we use to to form vowels. Some vowels happen at the top back of the mouth. Some happen at the bottom uh, back of the mouth and some happen uh, right at the front of the mouth uh, at the bottom. And there's this sort of laziness about how we form vowels that cause language to drift over time because um, we have a natural tendency uh, to allow vowels to soften over time, to simply not put uh, a lot of effort into forming vowels. The same thing happens with consonants. Uh, We have consonant softening, so I'll give one example. The word bottle is spelled with two T's B O T T L E. I don't think so. That's the American spelling. I think the proper English spelling is the same in this case, right? Uh, So, but we don't say bottle. We don't pronounce the T's. Consonant softening causes us to simply accept bottle as if the word is spelled with D's. But that's not. How it's written and in fact, if we do a little bit of, of uh, uh, language sleuthing, we find that in the past, bottle was pronounced bottle, uh, where the, where the T's were actually pronounced as T's rather than D's. So consonant softening actually changed the way that word uh, that word is heard. And when populations diverge from each other. These softenings can take place at different rates, uh, and there's a there's another characteristic called rebracketing. So another way words change. Um, we have a uh, in the past we used mine as a as a possessive versus mine. So there's a there's a, a pretty well known example. Uh, the the phrase mine Ellie, right? The the name Ellie, and you might say. Uh, you know, you, you might feel very possessive toward Ellie. It might be uh, your favorite sister. You'd say mine, Ellie, at some point in the distant past. And children uh, don't often bracket words properly. They don't often uh, know that mine is a word and Ellie is another is another word. And so rebracketing would cause my Nelly, where the e uh, is rebracketed to be part of the name ellie and in fact the nickname for ellie in some parts of the world is nelly and a little yes yeah and so we actually ended up through through a completely natural re-bracketing with two new words out of two old words my and the nickname nelly this completely natural language drift
0: on the subject, of that. so let's just rewind back to the bottle because, because mm. I say bottle, bottle of wine, bottle of beer, bottle of ketchup, and you say it how? Bottle,
1: as as if the two T's were D's rather than T's. Yeah, but
0: my lovely Queen's English British accent, I my <laughs> T's are much more clearly enunciated, aren't they?
1: They they are, uh, and so I speak American. I'm not making it up
0: on this podcast. That's really how I speak.
1: Right, and and I know that it is, and and so I speak American and understand English. <laughs> and,
0: you know, <laughs> <laughs> Don't you forget it? That's the way. You go.
1: <laughs> so, so right. Um, you do say things uh, that uh, are. I think you probably pronounce aluminum differently than than that I. That is not a word.
0: What you just said—that is it's not a word it's aluminum
1: right and i <laughs> except that i can i can point uh uh to my mac mini over here sitting on the table and and it's made from uh from a single piece of aluminum and I, and and i know that you have the, yeah and and so this is a natural part of language drift linguists Call this language drift, and there's no surprise that large populations, when they diverge, have slightly different kinds of drift that account for our different accents and um, and and the fact that you guys just can't let go of, of English and' are
0: uh... oh, precious about our language we're very. <laughs>
1: Um, but we do have we do have language drift, and in fact in the in the world right now, there are about six thousand human languages so that 's quite a lot. Uh, apparently, only about two hundred of them are actually written, and written language plays a key role in how how long it takes language to to drift as it turns out, writing down a language has a very preservative effect. we tend to uh, take longer to drift from bottle to bottle uh, when we have a, a written language. Languages also have uh, sort of super families, um, a, a single family from which multiple languages uh, can be seen to derive. And there's a thought um, that all human language uh, diverged from a single language at some point in the past. That's possible, but we aren't there yet. We, we don't actually know that that's the case. though. There we need is- some
0: to be able to track that, don't we? And I think that's where the problem is because early you- writing has moved, because as we trace the history of writing, it moves from pictures to sort of hieroglyphics, and then we get to structured. Uh, symbols or what we would call letters but we haven't got that history of sounds and structure so to rebuild language uh, to the early stages of writing is is really going to be a difficult task isn't it
1: it is and there's a there's a project called the the ehl project the evolution of human language and if you if you just go and do some cursory reading about ehl one of the one of the Uh, sort of accepted facts that you come across is that after 5,000 years or so, a child language is so distant. It has diverged so much from the parent language that it's indistinguishable. Right. And, uh, but we, we think that language has been around for at least 40,000 years and possibly, possibly much longer. So, when we want to discover what the parent language of, of English is, uh, unless, of course, it was the original language and it's just been hanging around for, for, for thousands and thousands of years. Uh, so when we. Yeah, want I'd
0: to, be, be my mark, I think, if I if I managed, if I tried to claim that.
1: Yeah, maybe so, maybe so. But if we if we want to track the origin of a language, it becomes very difficult after that five or six thousand years because of language divergence. And so there, then we start thinking about families of languages, right? And and some families of languages share common words and, uh, uh, and common concepts. And we can sort of see that these families of languages uh, maybe have a language that they uh, in turn came from. So there's sort of a hierarchy that extends into the past, maybe toward maybe toward a single language origin but that's a conclusion that we haven't reached scientifically it's just one that feels very intuitive and sometimes the things that feel intuitive feel right without being right
0: but But there's there's also um, that kind of makes sense in the sense that the whole out of Africa hypothesis of human migration around the planet it started from a single location, so yep. therefore, saying or s- hypothesizing that language started from a single root, there's that kind of makes sense.
1: It does. Um, now, so so that's the the Mother Eve uh, uh, idea, and we do know uh, that that we are all descended um, from one common ancestor. Uh, there, there are some interesting details here. We know that through the matriarchal line, right? Because there's a, a certain kind of DNA passed from mother to daughter um, that uh, that allows us to track back to a common mother. Um, so as it turns out, uh, that's a key element in trying to understand the, the evolution of human language because that part of DNA um, changes at a at a very predictable rate, and it's why we can look back and um, track where the fox p two gene starts to uh, starts to appear in human uh, uh, in in the human genome. because without that
0: language is either unlikely or impossible.
1: That's right. They're, they're either unlikely or impossible. Um, and that turns out to be about 150,000 years ago. Now, important, importantly, the, the mitochondrial DNA, that's, that's what we're talking about here, the mitochondrial DNA that's passed from, from mother to daughter. So we, we know that that mitochondrial DNA has a certain rate of change, and that rate appears to be very constant. We think the FOXP2 gene entered the human genome somewhere around 150,000 years ago. And right around that time, uh, that divergence from, uh, from Neanderthal to Homo sapien, that's also when we start to see expression of art. Um, we start to see things like sewn clothes, more advanced tool use. Um, and, and even though language... Uh, sort of exploded, we think, 40,000 years ago or so. Um, we can track where the Fox P2 gene started to make a difference, both in terms of where we think it came in in the human genome and the change in society that came along with it. And we get that both through archaeology and Uh, through similar attempts to date through uh, mitochondrial DNA. That sounds like there's a
0: lot of things hanging off just one gene. We're not really saying that that gene is responsible for all of those things, are we?
1: Oh, no, 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 uh, certainly, certainly not. But there does appear, you know, so we... It's like the
0: key the door, is it?
1: Right, And, and certainly... When you think about uh, brain structures, right? There are other important uh, there are other important details about humans because Neanderthals uh, had large brains like we do, right? We their their brain to body mass was was quite similar. In some cases, slightly larger brains, right? And so it's not just this one gene. Um, but certainly we do a lot. Uh, certainly language does play a key role in our ability, uh, to communicate with each other and, uh, to make changes, uh, based on our ability to communicate sophisticated ideas.
0: Right. Okay. That's, that's all very interesting. So, um, we probably ought to move on because we've covered quite a lot of detailed stuff uh, on that. So. Going back to the the movement uh, of, of language, which obviously there's correlation between the movement of language and the movement of, uh, of human populations around the globe. Is there a way that we can geographically, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Is there a way that we can pin certain languages to geographical areas of the world historically? Like obviously currently English is in certain countries, French is in certain countries, uh, Etc. Around the world, are we able to rewind to where geographically the, the roots of these languages spread from, and where in the world that they they spread
1: from? We can. Or, yeah, yeah, we we can actually uh, at least at least some. So there's a um, uh, linguists have a, a sort of language map, and the language map is color coded. Uh, to to express language, uh, language families, and uh, those color codes lay out uh, quite nicely and very geographically uh, on the globe, though there are some flies uh, in the ointment. As it turns out, we do have uh, some language families that span multiple geographic locations. And I don't know at this point that the reason Uh, is clearly defined about why some language families cover more than one uh, geographic region as a natural origin for that family group.
0: Okay. Are those far apart or are they sort of like human, travelable over a couple of months kind of thing?
1: Well, some of them, um, I think, uh, uh, particularly uh, particularly in Asia, Um, we see some family groups and they're all and you know, they're quite close together. Right. Um, But they are all um, in some sense, travelable, uh, you know, over sort of human distances without modern transportation. Um, And and so the question would be um, sort of why there would be family groups and why the edges would develop. Right. But um yes they are they're neighboring, and there don't appear to be any sort of geographic gaps uh, in the map so okay.
0: could um, this be um could this be tied down to trade routes because obviously if you've got different groups who are wanting to trade and they don't speak the same language, I can see that being a challenge
1: sure and and that probably does account for. Uh, those family groups that uh, cross multiple geographic regions. uh, Trading uh, is an important detail about how, uh, about language being carried uh, from group to group. Um, And the question is, can we rewind even further um, on this sort of language map, right? And find the parent language for those languages that spread that span multiple geographic areas, Okay. Right? And that's hard work. We're uh, we're attempting it. Uh, the human evolution, uh, the the human language evolution project, is attempting to do exactly that by mapping the history of words.
0: Okay, so that's all very interesting. So we we're drawing to the end of our time. We can't really talk about this kind of subject. Uh, and coming under the banner of a podcast about atheism and dialogues with atheism without mention the legend of the Tower of Babel in Genesis and how that relates to the divine confusion of people and them speaking all sorts of different languages, not being able to understand each other and then moving away. Is there anything in this history and the geographic uh, dispersion of languages that can be used to support this language is originating in a single point at a single point in time
1: um if there is uh the you know evolution of human language project is is working to discern whether there is a single uh, a single root uh language but what we know of language drift argues against the tower of babel uh language drift uh you know simply uh, appears to happen very naturally over time. When we think about when we think about the Tower of Babel, um, the actual tower that is called Babel has has been discovered. Uh, it's in ancient Mesopotamia. Uh, it dates, oh, if I if I remember my history correctly, three or four hundred BC. Okay, three or four hundred BC. So. Uh, quite near.
0: That doesn't uh, work to the dating of Genesis, though, does it?
1: That's right. So the story of the Tower of Babel is in Genesis chapter 11, and the idea there was that the, uh, that the tower builders were about to construct uh, a tower that was such a human feat that God decided uh, that he needed to confound the languages. He didn't want them to be able uh, to build this tower for whatever divine reason. But that is uh, relatively closely on the hills of the, of the flood of Noah in Genesis 7 and 8. It's certainly before um, uh, the time of David and Solomon, uh, which is well before uh, the sort of intertestamental period. So you think about uh, the period between Malachi and Matthew. That's about 350 years, according to biblical historians. And as it turns out, the, the actual Tower of Babel, dates to somewhere uh, right about the beginning of that intertestamental period. So the idea that there was a uh, an, a literal tower of Babel uh, in Genesis chapter 11 simply doesn't stand up to uh, historical scrutiny.
0: Okay, so apart from the practical problems as well, there's also challenges with the way languages have moved and we can't nail down languages that Early in, in history, languages go back far beyond a couple of hundred BC. So it, it it just doesn't map with what we know so far.
1: That's right, because so so it might be fair, uh, just to just to try to understand the nature of the story. It might be fair to say. Remember um, earlier on, we talked about the The fact that tracing a parent language um, is quite hard after several thousand years because language drift makes it hard to identify the parent language yeah. and, and so maybe we 've got a population that comes up with this explanation um, because it didn 't have anything like um, modern linguistic understanding right and and so maybe this is an attempt. Uh, to understand why some of our neighbors don't talk the way we do, but in the sense that it is it is fair to think that modern linguistic uh, tools uh, demonstrates that there's some credibility to the story of the of, to- of the tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Um, there's no modern linguistic technique doesn't lend any credibility to that story
0: at all. Okay, because we don't see the sudden jump and the sudden appearance of all these languages that we would see if the Tower of Babel story was true.
1: That's right, because we can trace human language and and multiple roots of human language far before Genesis chapter 11. That is, we know that multiple languages were being spoken before the time of that story.
0: Okay, thanks. Before we um, close up, then, was there any points that I haven't questioned you on that you want to just bring up and bring a point on?
1: Well, we're at a we're probably are at the end. And if we open a if we open a new point, um, we'll we'll go. You know, we might go quite a lot longer. I do want to say uh, that uh, the listeners can go to uh, ReasonPress.net. And, uh, and find ask an atheist anything. They are welcome to contribute questions there. And uh, again, we would love to have uh, we'd love to have um, anyone of a, with, a, uh, with a religious viewpoint. Uh, come on the show and talk to us. We want to uh, you know, get to know you ahead of time. We will uh, swap our ideas. This is not a live uh, sort of call-in format. So what we want to do is uh, get to know our listeners and, uh, and swap our ideas ahead of time, give each other the, the chance to uh, vet the position that the other person might, uh, might bring forward and, uh, and come on and have a, um, a truly open conversation about any idea where, uh, you know, a, a Christian or, or a Muslim wants to ask an atheist a question.
0: Yes, sector, I'll echo that. This uh, isn't uh, isn't about scoring any points. This is about uh,
1: uh,
0: honest uh, question and answer dialogue sessions. I'm sure this is a subject we'll come back to. We clearly haven't covered everything that's in it. So, as a final goodbye, then, I will just bring up a news item that has come up during our study here, which which I found on the independent newspaper website here in the UK from Monday, the 28th of May this year. So quite a recent one. And it's coming off the back of a science festival, the Cheltenham Science Festival that was held earlier in the year. And um, there is a neuroscientist by the name of Emma Byrne, who's going to be doing a talk or sorry, rather did do a talk at this science festival. And she's talking about swearing in children. I found this really interesting because I have a, Child, myself, I don't want my child swearing constantly. In fact, to be quite honest, my child has told me off for swearing uh, in the home, which is probably the way I'd rather it was. But what uh, Emma is going to or did say in this is she wants children to learn how to swear. Proper, I don't know if properly is the right word to use in this context, but I'll just pull out a quote that she says here. She says, "We try to keep strong language away from kids until they know how to use it effectively." i strongly argue that we should revise this attitude talking honestly about why people swear helps them to demystify not just the words but also the emotions of the people around them and i think that's um uh, quite interesting that you know swearing is very much of uh, a, a taboo certainly um i spent many years as a christian uh, being afraid of uh, swear words and this article, right at the very end of it, draws attention to a study which talks about uh, volunteers who are holding their hands in icy cold water. And they found that those who were allowed to swear while holding their hands in icy cold wa- water were able to hold their hands in there for about 50% longer. So being able to utter those those words has some kind of neurological benefit, shall we say. And she's clearly going to be arguing, or did argue, that children... I don't know if it encourages the right word to use either, but certainly children shouldn't be discouraged actively from learning these words because there are some benefits to them. Any comments, Andrew?
1: Well, I like the idea uh, at some level of teaching children to swear responsibly. Uh, if you hit your finger with a, a hammer when you're driving a nail, only a swear word will do right we, we uh, like I agree. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> and 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 we know this we we know that there are times that only an expletive will do and we've had this we've had this society for too long where some words are taboo there's there's sort of a uh, a softer example of this in teaching children about uh, in teaching children about their bodies right we don't uh we don't teach male children that they have a a penis right but we know that uh teaching children the proper names for for their body parts teaching them anatomical names has certain benefits um if if they're being preyed upon right there's there is power in being able to say um take your hands off my penis. Right? There, there is, there is power in the way we allow people to use language. And by making certain things taboo that has repercussions. Now we can talk about what those repercussions are when, uh, when certain types of words are appropriate. Right. But, that is the conversation we should have. We should have a conversation about when things are appropriate, not what is taboo.
0: Yes. Thank you, Andrew. So, and on that note, then a reminder of our website's address, reasonpress.net. Go on there. There's a blog on there. There's chapters of our book, Still Unbelievable, on there that you can comment on. And find the Ask an Atheist Endless Things section. Drop us a question. And we'll get round, uh, we'll have a conversation and we'll see if we can get you on the podcast. Thank you very much for the conversation, Andrew. Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye.